everybody, uh, welcome to the ninth edition of More Room. Share on new Claude Denise Moore Spos. Let's start with this. I've been playing this band a lot. Morris Maitlam Eid, August Rest of Nation.
focus put into Cyclos falls beneath the gloom All those reeks of certain doom Kratos rises from the blue
Go through her like an earthquake 
Kitchen, La Chanteuse, Lauren Guillory, August Lonesome Queen, as our album is Jeremy, Disaster in La La Land. Before that was It Shines Alone from Pig's 2008 album, Do You Like Smack Rock? Track two today was by the Texas outfit Funky Mustard, Hiya Larry. Uh, it was titled Kratos and came from their album Sonidos. August the Hussy Man, you the rest of nation, August Cliff's Edge, uh, from the album Lucidum. Now, over the Christmas period, I watched again the docu on Fairy Tale of New York, uh, since I knew a lot of the people in it, and it was quite touching to see Dennis Driscoll with Hollywood star Matt Dillon hauling Shane McGowan into the drunk tank. Dennis sadly passed away during 2020, and I was reminded of how much of a New York friend he was to Irish acts, including the Pogues, the Frames, and the Mary Janes. Here's the interview I did with him in 2010. With me now, I'm very pleased to welcome to the radio station, for the first time, is debuting here, but we've, we've worked together and as recently as last Sunday, and we're going to be working again together next Sunday, so that's my interest expressed. Uh, his name is Dennis Driscoll. You're very welcome, Dennis. Thank you very much. It's nice really to be a, here. a pleasure. And uh, it, was, it was really, really enjoyable and on show. We had a select audience, but there were people there who, who knew your material and also wanted engaged with you while you were delivering your material, which was wonderful. Like Frank Murray shouting up about uh, certain years. <laughs> I, I still think he was wrong there. I think it was 87, not 88. But yeah, okay. <laughs> leave it um, at that. Now, you're, you're not a stranger to this, these shores. I mean, obviously, your, your, your album is called Inwood Stories, and what you've been doing is, is uh, telling stories about your experiences in Inwood. But uh, you've been to Ireland a few times to perform here before, haven't you? I came here in 1999, first time on vacation, and a good friend of mine, Glenn Hansard, uh, who I had been sending the stories to via email and who was really supportive, uh, asked me to open for him at Whelan's. Uh, he was doing a solo gig. I really was reluctant. I had no idea what I would do. He's like, I said, open for you? Doing what? He said, read your stories. And I was like, oh. I don't know. So I called my dad. I said, they want me to read my stuff here. I'm just not sure. He says, hey, you don't live there. If it doesn't go well, get out of town. And I was like, you're right. You know, so uh, fortunately it did go well. And I got two more gigs the same week uh, opening with people like Mark Dignam and Mick Christopher and Glenn again. And uh, came back a number of times after that to open for the frames at Whelan's. So this will be my first time at Whelan's as a, a headliner, right. I guess. Okay. Now, uh, you mentioned Mick Christopher there, and I know that when you've come back at uh, times, you did you did uh, get very close to Mick. Oh, uh, yeah. And uh, God, God rest him, he was a wonderful talent. Definitely. You know? Definitely. And uh, in, in my mind, like, if he was recommending your material, then he'd be something, <laughs> you got to listen, you know what I mean? Yeah. He, uh, I met him in New York, too. Mm. I met Glenn in 94, Mick in 95 uh, with the Mary Janes, and... Uh, immediately both of them guys became best friends right and I mean Carl from the Mary Janes has talked very highly of you as well that's how I knew mm -hmm. about you before we actually uh, did, the, did a gig together um, and, and I guess you, you, you had associations with them with uh, Frank Murray who obviously was looking after exactly. the frames at that time exactly yeah um, and you would have known some of the Pogues as well I guess right well I was in the fairy tale New York video ah. uh, at the very beginning uh, um when they bring Sh Matt, Matt Dillon brings in Shane, me and my younger brother are playing detectives arresting the drunken Santa Claus, <laughs> oh, who was okay. very drunk. Uh, and we were in a real police precinct, and they were not very happy. <laughs> <laughs> oh, really? Yeah. Uh, well, uh, marching with the, the full Irish uh, bagpipes and all that. Yeah, that yeah. It was a really, really good fun. Yeah. Yeah, okay. Yeah, it was a great video. Well, what, what, I mean, for our listeners, I, I have explained a little bit about what you do, uh, and really it's, your tell you, it's, it's telling stories as, as they happen to you. And I mean, they are autobiographical. Biographical, or, yes. you know, to a greater or lesser extent. You pretty, know, pretty much. Yeah. It, more memoirs than yeah. diaries. Uh, yeah. I didn't write them at the time, but what are they're my remembrances mm. of that period. Mm which I'm kind of surprised I rem remember anything <laughs> from that period. <laughs> remember you weren't there. <laughs> okay, Dennis, we'll get, we'll get the first one from you, please, uh, because okay. we want to make sure we have time to get a couple of them in, and then we're going to play a track from Dennis's uh, album, which is called Inwood Stories, and this, uh, wonderful interpretations uh, of, his, of his material with uh, musicians as well, and kind of a little, a little bit along the lines of what I've been up to, um, which is why I, I've taken to Dennis's stuff so much. Uh, what story are you going to start with, Dennis? I'm going to do one I did the other 
other night called Grand Union. Grand Union. It was the first story yes, I wrote. That's right. Brilliant so. stuff. Dennis Driscoll for you live on The Verge. When I was 16, I worked as a cashier at a grocery store called Grand Union in New York City. Most of us who worked at that age worked in grocery stores. Some as bag boys, some as delivery boys, and some as stock boys. I worked as a stock boy for a while, but being a cashier was much better suited for someone using heroin. We were all bonded and all our mistakes on the register were covered by insurance. We would make money by forgetting to ring up certain items or by bringing in coupons and cashing them in. There were other ways to scam too and I would usually work it out so I made an extra 10 bucks a night. This was plenty for a 16 year old kid who was still experimenting with junk and not really addicted. For the longest time I would only do dope on the weekends, especially when I was in a Catholic high school called Cardinal Hayes in the Bronx. Up until my 11th grade, I really wanted to do well in school, but by the time I got toward the end of the 11th, I didn't care anymore. So during my weekend warrior junkie run, I had one friend, this guy DJ, who was always trying to tempt me with dope. Even before I started using, he was always trying to get me high, and I think it was a case of misery loves company. DJ's family was one of those big Irish families. There was a history of diabetes in the family, so we always had works. He used to steal his brother's glass syringes with the stainless steel spikes, which were the top of the line. One day, DJ calls me up and tells me he wants to get me high. At first, I wasn't interested, it being a weekday. And the fact I had to go to work in two hours didn't help. But he talked me into it. He told me to meet him at the pigeon coop we had built together down by the East River. I met him there, and he had a $6 pound bag from the Heights. A pound bag was normally a $5 bag, but when you were a white boy, you usually paid a dollar more. These bags were huge. Pound bags na- na- normally came double bagged because they held so much dope they tended to leak. So the bag would be a glassine envelope filled once to the fold and then slipped into another glassine bag that was folded shut and then taped. So I got to the coop and DJ was already high. And man, was he high. At this point, I was still skin popping. Hadn't made the move to mainlining. DJ suggests I be careful and not main it. He hands me one of these $6 bags, and as I said, it's huge. A really full bag. At this time, the dope in Inwood wasn't bad, especially from this one area in the Heights. This area was called Fungito Village, which stands for a little swamp. Most of the, the guys up there were Puerto Ricans who copped down in Spanish Harlem. Spanish Harlem also had a large community of Italians, Italians who had really good drug connections. So this would filter down to the Puerto Ricans in that hood. When I first started getting high, you could get capsules filled with heroin, and I mean good heroin, for 75 cents. But they seldom made it in that form up to Inwood. The Puerto Rican junkies from Inwood would get them, put them in glassine bags, and sell them for two or three bucks, or maybe two for five. DJ hands me the bag and sits down to nod out. I cook up the contents of the bag, and since I still have a fairly low resistance, I'm thinking, ah, it's only a half a bag. So I cook it, draw it up, and skin pop it into my upper arm, which is intermuscular uh, injection. Usually it takes about 15 minutes or so to hit you. So I clean the works and give them back to DJ, and we walk back to where we live. Now DJ is high as hell, and when DJ got high like that, he puked, and he puked a lot. I can still picture him between two cars, velocity vomiting and yelling, Don't look at me! Don't look at me when I'm puking! And of course, no one was ever looking at him, but he was always afraid someone would. DJ was a slow walker. He was never an athlete. When he was younger, DJ was a fat kid. The kid that all the older guys in the hood would give change just to see how much he would eat. He'd get a pocket full of change and go to Eli's candy store and load up on ice cream, soda, potato chips, dropping ice cream all over his shirt as he struggled to eat it before it melted. So DJ walked now like he still had an armful of ice cream and other goodies. This time he was so stoned and puking every few feet, I had to leave. I had to go home for dinner and then go to work. So I hurry home, but as I, as I do, I start to feel the dope, and it keeps coming on. If I had mainlined it, I surely would have OD'd. By the time I get home, I'm screwed. I know if I went home and didn't eat dinner, my parents would know I was high. This wasn't long after I had confessed all my drug use to my parents while I was high on LSD. My mom went to all kinds of meetings to find out the warning signs of drug use. Loss of appetite was a definite sign, so I had to eat. 
It was pork chop night in the Driscoll household. Pork chops with applesauce on them, mashed potatoes, and we always had mashed potatoes unless we were eating spaghetti or Spanish rice. So I scoffed down my dinner. Because I was getting late for work, my mom looked at me a little funny like she thought I was high, but let it go. After dinner, I left the house. We lived on the third floor. By the time I hit the vestibule of the building, I was doing a DJ and puking, velocity puking my dinner up into the uh, hallway. I didn't have the time or the inclination to clean it up. If I had gone back upstairs for a mop and a bucket, it would have been a sure sign to mom that I was high. So I just left it and went to work. At the Grand Union, the workers had a reputation for being hard drinkers. We'd come in drunk or drink during work, especially on the night crew. The night crew stocked the shelves and did inventories and stuff like that. But I was the only one there shooting dope. Few of the guys smoked a little weed, but the bulk of them were wetheads. <laughs> drinkers. So I'm at the register and I'm really high, doing my best not to nod out at the register. I'm feeling good though, and I'm thinking I've exhausted the dinner that I scoffed down earlier, and we're starting to get into the high. I only had a few hours left. I was pretty confident I could get done and then go to the park and nod out for an hour or two and then go home. Well, it didn't work out that way. All of a sudden, after ringing up a particularly big order, I got hit with a really strong wave of nausea. I was trapped in my little space by the register. I looked around quickly, just after hitting the total button, and wham! Out it came, right into the cash register. Quite a large stream in the remainder of my dinner. My customers were an older woman and her daughter, who was just about my age. They couldn't believe it, and I tried to carry on like nothing had happened. I went to hand her the change when I realized the change was dripping in puke. She recoiled and asked me, are you all right? There was not a whole lot I could say at this point, and the manager of the place came running over and told me to go to the bathroom. I more or less staggered into the back room and cleaned myself up. All my friends were laughing. I went back into the manager's office and he yelled, that's what you get for drinking on the job. I tried to tell him I wasn't drunk until I realized it was better to be caught drunk at work than high on heroin. Then I looked around the office and saw the manager had strung a clothesline all around his office and hanging from the line were dollar bills he had just washed off. He asked me if he wanted, wanted my parents to come pick me up and I had to squash that idea. If he called my parents and told them I had thrown up on a job, they would have realized it was me that threw up in our hallway. So I got out of there and went to the schoolyard at Junior High School 52 and nodded blissfully for a few hours. Excellent stuff, Dennis. That really, it's really emotive. Obviously, you're lucky. You're a man who probably has seen lots of friends die along, oh, yeah. along the way. Um, yeah, too many. Did, did you yourself have to go into rehab or things like that, or was that something you fought yourself? Or? Uh, I got on methadone when I was 19. I, I used from when I was 14 to when I was 19. And I got on methadone for eight years, and then slowly weaned myself off that. Mm. Okay, well, fair play to you. And I mean, you became involved in uh, music then. I mean, you were a bass player with quite quite a few little outfits. Right. Yeah. Uh, was that was that a, a good therapy? In oh a sense? Yeah, yeah, definitely, definitely. I I took up the bass after I put down the needle, <laughs> uh, <laughs> and. Uh, didn't you know spent a couple of years in my bedroom just playing to records and mm. you know but i always had a feel for the bass you know yeah. it's the kind of instrument that is pretty much in you you know yeah. okay and uh about 77 78 you know i became aware of the cbgb scene which was happening probably from 75 on 74 even uh, but I really didn't go down there myself until 77. Mm. And I had a good friend that worked the door at CBGB's. Uh, her mother and my mother grew up together in Inwood. And uh, she was a good in. She introduced me to the right people. Uh, my favorite band is Television. Oh, uh, wow. Very yeah. big. And her <laughs> boyfriend at the time was the bass player. So uh, they had a place that I helped them move into on 12th Street. So I became good friends with Fred Smith, the bass player from Television. And... Uh, they would recommend, you know, when anybody needed a bass player, they'd, you know, say, well, I have a friend, you know, and uh, I eventually got a gig with this band, The Foolish Virgins, who had other people in and out of it that went on to do bigger things, uh, most notably Pat Irwin, who's played with the B-52s and okay. a lot of different bands. Mm -hmm. And... Uh, 
I, I guess as well. I mean, the, the New York scene with the Andy Warhol, the Lou Reeds, and all that—all that was going on just pre pre CBGB. Yeah, yeah. Well, but I mean, you you were you were uh, kind of uh, immersed in that kind of world as well, weren't yeah. you? Yeah, yeah, yeah. A, a lot of that I got uh, by reading. You know, yeah. uh, there's a guy from my neighborhood named Jim Carroll who recently passed away. He wrote a book called Basketball Diaries, which was about. Pretty much the same stuff I'm writing about. Yeah. Uh, he was 13, using heroin, but he was also a basketball star. Had a good chance of going somewhere with it, but the drugs took over. So mm-hmm. He later put a band together, the Jim Carroll Band, who had a, a big hit with this song, People Who Died, which mentions many people from my neighborhood and people oh. I grew up with. Okay. Uh, we'll go for another story, Dennis, please. Okay. Uh, what have you chosen to do next? This one's called <laughs> First Shot. It's uh, about my first shot. First shot. Okay. And DJ has mentioned this again. Uh, DJ O'Rourke, who's long since passed away, was a really good friend of mine. And uh, he shows up in a couple of my stories. And it's weird that he shows up in two in a row. Okay. But here we go. <laughs> For you live again, it's Dennis Driscoll. Okay. Inwood was a real party neighborhood. There was an incredible amount of bars. And I had seen lots of people who were high, ma- mainly on alcohol. I wanted to experience getting high for quite some time before I actually did. My first thoughts of junk were planted by my school. We used to have assemblies in the auditorium of our school, Our Lady Queen of Martyrs. On occasion, they would show films. One day, they showed a film about a junkie. I had seen one or two junkies in Inwood at the time. I still wasn't sure what these people were high on, but my parents used to tell me to stay away from them. This wasn't hard, considering I was 12 and they were 20. The most recognizable junkie in Inwood was named Norman. But Norman had nothing on the junkie in the film they showed at school. Well, I got to see more of what it was like to be a junkie in the film than I learned from seeing Norman running around Inwood. Or at least what the makers of the film wanted you to think what it was like to be a junkie. This junkie's name was Charlie. He lived in a shack on the wrong side of town. Uh, His house was dirty, he was dirty, and they said he smelled too. They showed Charlie getting up in the morning needing a fix. Needing a fix badly. He had vomited into his wastebasket. He dragged himself out of bed, cooked up his first shot of the day, and after the shot, of course, he was just fine. I really don't remember all the details of the film, but I do remember I wanted some of what that stuff Charlie was doing. I wasn't exactly enthusiastic about being a junkie and shooting up, but I wanted that high. I thought it would be easier and quicker than drinking, which I still hadn't done either. But a seed was planted. I still didn't equate Norman the Junkie with Charlie the Junkie movie star, but I wanted what Charlie had. Well, it was a good two years before that happened. I started drinking in the eighth grade, drinking quarts of beer on rooftops and getting really, really drunk. Things progressed very rapidly from there. There were a few guys who smoked weed, but I didn't even smoke cigarettes, so I thought I'd have a hard time smoking weed. I didn't want to embarrass myself by coughing when I smoked it. I refused to do it on, on a school night. I had three chances to do it before I finally tried it. But I finally did smoke some weed, and I still remembered Charlie. I smoked my first joint, and two months later took my first acid trip, and two months after that tried heroin. I had been wanting this for years, and for the last few months I had been wanting it and avoiding it. This guy DJ was always trying to get me to do dope with him. But it was always on a school night, and I didn't want to get high on a school night. At least not then. Giving someone their first shot was called giving them their wings. And it was really frowned on by the older junkies. Getting someone high for the first time was considered bad form. But I guess with DJ, it was just like I said, a case of misery loves company. So in the summer between grammar school and high school, I knew I was going to do heroin. I was mainly hanging out with the hippie kids up in the southern end of Fort Tryon Park, not far from this museum up there called the Cloisters. A few of them were also into heroin besides being acid heads and potheads, but most of the acid heads looked down on the junkies, at least until two years later when some of them same acid heads became the worst junkies out there. One night at the end of the summer, St. Jude's, another local Catholic school, had its annual bazaar to raise money to build a church. My plan was the same whenever the bazaar was on, just to go down, play some games of chance and ride some rides, and see my friends. The night before, I had made my first attempt at doing heroin. By now, I knew you could snort it, and lots of people I knew were doing it that way. Some of the more hardcore guys were shooting it, but I wanted to snort it. I ran into a friend who hung out with the hippies, but was also did dope. 
this guy Danny had a brother who was also a junkie for a few years and who was more knowledgeable about it than me. So I wanted him to be the guy I got high with. We split a $3 bag, which, again, being a white boy, you're paying the extra dollar for a $2 bag. Copping was amazingly easy. Now came the hard part. Danny wanted to shoot his half of our bag, so we had to find works. At this time, finding works was sometimes harder than finding the drugs. We walked and walked and walked all over Inwood and half of Washington Heights looking for works. Finally, back in Inwood, we found some. It was a beautiful summer evening, but not too hot and a really nice breeze. A breeze that would prevent me from getting high that night. Danny got the works. You went down and got some water in a cup from a local pizza shop and now headed for a place to do it. Being it was my first time, I basically just followed Danny for what seemed like hours. My parents were away and my brother and his wife were minding me and my younger brother so I wasn't worried about staying out late. Finally, Danny decided we should go down to the river to get high. We hiked down to the Hudson River and found the spot. Danny poured what he said was half the bag into the cooker. He did his shot, skinning it into his upper arm, and then turned around to me with his house keys and proceeded to feed me the dope. Often in them days, you, when you snorted, you have a friend feed it to you. He'd put the key with dope under your nostril and say, go. Well, that beautiful summer breeze managed to blow most of my dope into the air. I didn't even get that nasty nasal drip I had heard about. Needless to say, I didn't get high. I wasn't that mad because I was still a little nervous about it, and it wasn't that much dough. Danny said he felt bad and would definitely get me high soon, and we parted, and I went home. The next evening, I leave my house, walk down the block, and there's Danny. He says, give me a dollar. I said, what? He said, give me a dollar, quick. I slip him a dollar and he disappears around the corner. Less than a minute later, he, DJ, Bobby, and Jimmy McQuestion come back around the corner and Danny says to me, let's go. So I go with them, still not sure what's happening. But we go into 2 Arden Street, straight up to the rooftop. On the way up, DJ tells me, if Jimmy asked me if I ever got high before, lie and tell him yes. McQuestion was a little older and didn't want to give a kid like me his wings. We get to the skylight and out come the works. This night we're in luck. Bobby and DJ both have brothers who are diabetic. Plenty of works for everyone. Everyone gets off and now it's my turn. I definitely wasn't going to mainline, not my first time. So McQuestion asked me, you've done this before, right? Of course I lie and say yes. So McQuestion tells me to roll up my sleeve and jabs me quick and shoots it in. I don't feel a thing. Then the wait. Skin popping, it takes about 10 to 15 minutes to come on. After 10 minutes, DJ comes over to me and says, Hey, you feel it? I was like, Nah, I don't feel nothing. He goes, Oh man, he gave you a water shot. Before I could even inquire what a water shot is, I feel it. I feel a wave, a smooth feeling envelop my body. Oh man. DJ asks again, You feel it now? Yes. A big smile crosses my lips, but that weird junky smile, with your eyelids drooping and your mouth sort of turned down on the ends. The only word that came into my head to describe it was creamy. I felt smooth. So they cleaned up the works and I floated down the stairs. I floated to the store and bought a Coke, drank it right down and minutes later threw it right back up, but I didn't care. We went to the annual St. Jude's Bazaar and everything I drank immediately came back up, but I didn't care. My parents were still away, so I stayed out later than usual. I floated all over the neighborhood that night and really had no recollection of going home, but I do remember that I didn't get in trouble. And no one on the street knew I had taken my first step to becoming like Norman and Charlie, a junkie. Thank you very much, Dennis. That's really amazing. Uh, you can catch Dennis on Sunday next in Whelan's upstairs um, I think it's seven you're on the door isn't it mm -hmm. um, we'll probably be outdoors about 8.30 and I'll, I'll be coming along with my launch crew as well to, to give some support on the night uh, so come along early and catch us all down there uh, your website is www.dennisdriscoll.com isn't that right well, yes it D is D-E-N-N-I-S-D-R-I-S-C-O-L-L and from there you can find ways of getting hold of his material on CD or whatever he has a CD called Inwood Stories and we're going to 
play a track from that now uh, to finish off this interview. It's a track called Shalom Absalom, uh, which is a, your cover of a Ween song. Is yes, that right? it is. Okay. Uh, thanks again, Dennis. Thank you. Uh, Shalom Absalom. Shalom Absalom. God's only one. Don't worry, son. Shalom, Absalom. Walk high and proud. Shalom, Absalom. Don't worry. Shalom. Just be gone. Shalom, Absalom. Don't worry, son. Shalom, Absalom. Think not of the bad things to come. Shalom, Absalom. Walk from Israel. You are the one. I loved her 
I meant it at the time Isn't that the worst kind of lie? If a lie lasts forever, it's practically true Mine only lasted a week or two And soon I was sleeping with her best friend Who called me a bastard, but called me again Happy can be I believe that that's true It can be for me It can be for you Happy can be I believe that that's true It can be for me It can be for you Some years later we met in the street Her boyfriend kicked out one of my teeth I don't know what it was That she saw there to love And me on my knees Spitting out blood But she cleaned me up And she took me home And now we're raising their kid as my own And she's pregnant again And this one's for me And we're as happy As happy can be And happy can be I believe that that's true It can be for me It can be for you Happy can be I believe that that's true It can be for me It can be for you We've settled down like two regular creeps I'm watching her now She's lying asleep And I reach out And I touch her hair So wherever she is She knows that I'm there And happy can be I believe that that's true It can be for me It can be for you Happy can be I believe that that's true It can be for me It can be for you Happy can be I believe that that's true It can be for me It can be for you Happy can be I believe that that's true It can be for me Ancient rituals still lingered from touching wood to candles lit to bring better fortune to those neglectfully infected. Somewhere between Wuhan and there, the viral strain had changed its code and the newly detected microscopic load in every droplet feasted with contagious ease on their careless human hosts. And now, PR machines must add hypocrisy's sheen when a vaccine appears at last. 
the ghosts of millions past who resented their own demise remained to cast their roomy eyes on those whose greed-filled breath had hastened their untimely deaths. But there are always things that have to be done and you aren't the only one clinging to wishes that it won't shape and shift again to make existence harder within restrictions. Bringing claims of culpable homicide to your hardship's court is flinging precious pieces of the time that's left here onto the pyre when daily needs are only acquired through sublimating line shuffling. Give karma a three years chance to fits decide. To fits decide in this real Aquarian age. In this real Aquarian before just real fat profiteers are seized and cuffed. We've seen the planets dance and acknowledged the wise men's star, whose light has not pleased the dark of heart, the dark but which, in our minds, could signal the bright restart of human kind.
you say it's too late now, everything's sly. I love you in your prime. 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 Give up.